This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeves. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heese, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Guys, we have an awesome episode for you here tonight. We have from the Mississippi State University Deer Lab, Dr. Steve Damaris. So we get into the science of things tonight, guys, with Steve. Dr. Steve, I should say. We talk about seasonal and spatial forage quality and quantity. We talk about life history considerations that drive deer requirements, deer biology and behavior, the build it and they will come, you know, thought process, management actions, seasonal nutrient mismatch. So, guys, it is an awesome episode. Dr. Steve is great. Very happy to have him on here. And he just gets into the facts behind a lot of our questions that we had. We have our buddy Al Tomeshko on the podcast with us, too. Al jumps on. Big fan of the MSU Deer Lab as well. So we kind of have a uh, four-person show here, a bunch of great information. So get your notepads ready, and um, this is going to be an informative one. Now, I want to thank the listeners. You guys have been awesome, you know, really getting some great reviews on the Habitat Podcast iTunes. I'm sending out more decals this week. Thank you so much for those reviews. If you guys can, go down in the show notes below this podcast right now that you're listening to. You can click the leave a review on there, and it will take you right to iTunes. You know, type us out something nice, leave your name. We'll find you, send you a free 5-inch Habitat podcast decal. We thank you for doing that. That helps us remain at the top of the charts. 
here at iTunes and the podcast world for habitat management. So thank you guys so much. I also want to thank our land plan clients. We wrapped up uh, two more this week, Brian and I. Um, Mike up in New Hampshire, finally, and then also uh, Jake over in Michigan. So glad to wrap you guys up. Thank you so much for putting your support in us. Um, we're having a great time doing these guys. We're helping people out, getting you guys on the right path. If you know, if you're wondering which direction you should start or where you should start in your habitat management, this is uh, we're really coming in and helping guys out, getting them on the right page here. Um, I want to read a testimonial from James. He was one of our Minnesota land plan clients here. James was nice enough to, to send in a testimonial, and he wrote the following. This is awesome. Thank you, Jared and Brian. It has been a pleasure to tap into your extraordinary habitat knowledge and discuss my property's potential. I really enjoyed seeing my farm through your eyes with your creative approach. I'm excited to see some of my initial ideas matching the plan, but blown away by a couple areas that I simply never pictured in the way you lay them out. Lots of work to do. Super jacked to head out and get to work. Thank you for sharing your expertise. James from Minnesota. James, again, thank you for trusting us with your property. And uh, yes, sir, you got some work to do, but that was awesome. Very nice of you to say that. We really do appreciate, uh, you know, you going with the Habitat Podcast land plan. Guys, if you want to book any of these before we wrap them up for the year, uh, we're already booking to June right now. You go to habitatpodcast.com slash land plans and submit your information. Again, if you scroll down in the show notes of the podcast you're listening to right now, you will see the link to the land plans, and you can just go there and make it easy for you. So thank you very much for all of our clients so far. We have a bunch more we're doing this summer so far and spring, and we look forward to getting them done. Um, I also want to thank Killer Food Plots. We're going to jump in with a little segment from Killer Food Plots before we get to the podcast where we talk about how a seasonal screen can accompany a perennial switchgrass screen or bedding area while, you know, using both at the same time. Pretty cool approach. I also want to thank Packer Max Cultipackers, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction, Morris Nursery, Huntwise. And, guys, just thanks so much. If you guys can support our sponsors, they help support us. Um, all their information is here. You can find it at habitatpodcast.com. I'll link to all their gear and all their stuff. And really, just thank you so much for listening, coming back, and leaving us feedback when you can. We love it. So let's get into it with Killer Food Plots real quick, and then we'll move into Mississippi State University's Dr. Steve Damaris. Even with that, Border Patrol still has its place, even with your switch, because switch will only get so tall and it only create um, it'll create cover, but it doesn't necessarily steer deer like Border Patrol. Border Patrol is more of a wall, a legitimate wall where a lot of your switch grasses and things like that, deer kind of wander in and out wherever they want. So if you're looking to steer the deer, even once that's in place, like we have, I think we have seven customers who we've implemented a permanent perennial grass, but we still use Border Patrol to help screen their entry and exit uh, because we just don't want deer to be there. We wrap it around some of their blinds so that they get the extra height and also um, keep the deer from moving in and out of that switch in specific areas where we don't want them. We don't mind if they bed in it, but we don't want them moving in and out downwind of tree stands and or blinds. So um, definitely the two can be incorporated long-term together. And, you know, when you can get something to grow from zero to 
you know, eight to 14 foot in a matter of 70 to 80 days, that's pretty substantial and definitely a, a great option to incorporate. Awesome. Well, we, we are rolling, guys. We have uh, Dr. Steve Damaris on from Mississippi State University. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Happy to be here, Jared. Uh, we're happy to have you. And uh, along on, on my left and my right, not physically, we have our co-host Brian Hallbly and also uh, great podcast team member Al Tomechko. Guys, how are you today? Doing I'm well. doing well, Jared. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Great. I'm glad you guys could all join. And um, Steve, we're very excited for this episode. We have our pens and papers ready to take some notes, as I'm sure the listeners will as well uh, when we air this. So let's get right into it. Let's hear about who Steve is, where you're from, um, paint us a picture of your background, and then we can get right into the nitty-gritty here. All right, sure thing, Jared. I'm I'm a professor of wildlife management at Mississippi State University, and, and I'm co-director of the Mississippi State University Deer Lab here, and we've been in existence for over 30 years, and our current uh, co-director is, is Bronson Strickland, who I think you're also going to have or maybe have already had on the show. And our, our main goal is to conduct research and then get the information out to people that are going to apply it. So it, if it's not going to impact management decisions on the land or on the deer population, then we're not as interested as some might be in doing research. That, that's our key. Learn what needs to be learned so that practitioners can improve what they do. That makes sense. Um, and I guess, how do you get into where you're at now as a professor? Um, what led you down this this life path, habitat path, all all that good stuff? Tell us how you, how you got where you're at. Well, I, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I'm kind of a, a former Yankee. And uh, came to Mississippi for graduate school back a long time ago and got my master's and Ph.D. here. I spent 15 years in Texas as a, a big game specialist, at, mostly at Texas Tech University. And I, I worked primarily in central Texas and south Texas and a little bit of west Texas, varying uh, pop, deer population and, and habitat. Uh, food plots, uh, you know, just a host of things. I'm, I'm really a deer guy as opposed to, you know, some people, some, a lot of academics are, you know, a topic. They are a population modeler or, you know, this or that. I'm just a deer guy who doesn't know a whole lot about anything, but I've, I've fooled people well enough over the last 35 years to spend my life doing something that I love, which is, conducting research and teaching people about deer management. And, and it, it's a great, been a great gig, and I don't know how I've gotten away with it. <laughs> well, you have us fooled because here we are today, and we're excited to interview you. So appreciate it. <laughs> now, let's, I guess let's, let's get right into the deer guy stuff. Um, you know, you and, and Bronson, we're going to have Bronson on. Like you said, you, you've written a book. Um, you've you know, been teaching this stuff forever, and then we have a, a list of things we're going to cover here today. Um, first and foremost is forage quality and quantity. I guess uh, let's kick it off there. Okay. Well, when you talk about deer management, you have to provide 
adequate forage for the deer to do their best. And, and you don't want to set the deer population, the, the, the individual deer that are living on your property, you can't set them up for failure. You have to try to set them up for success, just like we do with our kids. We, we don't want our kids to fail. We, we set them up for success. And there's three basic uh, things that I want to emphasize under, you know, this topic of forage quality and quantity is to set your deer population up for success, you have to have the adequate quality and quantity of, of forages. And, and whether in your Pennsylvania or Michigan or Mississippi or Ohio or, or wherever, the, the individual species of plants are going to vary, but some really uh, consistent patterns need to be kept in mind. And the first off is getting sunlight to the ground and, and the ability of plants to photosynthesize and grow is so critical. And that's tied oftentimes to the stage of habitat. And, you know, ecologists, we talk about successional stage. It's, it's the type of habitat. And it comes down to canopy cover. If the canopy is grabbing all the sunlight or the majority of it, then you're not getting any forage production on the ground. So it's key to get sunlight to the ground to be able to provide the quantity of green material within reach of the deer. The second consideration is making sure the quantity that is growing is the right quality. And so we think about forage types and we talk about browsers and, uh, you know, deer are generally browsers in that they eat the, the woody, the leaves of woody plant parts, but they also critically uh, eat forbs, which are non-woody uh, herbaceous plants, broadleaf weeds, things like that. And, and they use both browse and forbs critically within the annual cycle of the deer. Now, in your area, in the northern United States, browse is critically important. It, it's the, and, and it's critically important in the south, too. It's, it's the meat and potatoes of a, of a habitat uh, base uh, that's setting up, again, the deer population to succeed. And if you have to have the browse because that's the meat and potatoes, but the forbs are the seasonally available, really the, the, um, the gravy, the, the dessert, I don't know, I'm not really great with analogies, but uh, they are the seasoning to the meat and potatoes. Meat and potatoes by themselves can be kind of bland, so the forbs really provide a critical component to deer. If you look at deer food habits anywhere in the United States, they are going to primarily eat forbs during the springtime. And in, in roughly similar measures with with the browse because the browse has gone through green up. And uh, so the browse is new growth. The leaves are actively growing. And that's when browse is the highest quality. And the forbs are right there in equal high quality. But then the browse composition in the diet shifts away uh, or reduces as you go into the summer because that browse becomes lignified and it gets older and it becomes less palatable. But the forbs tend to continue growing through the summer and can be providing a critical forage quality component later in the summer after the browse has kind of uh, 
become aged and, and lignified. So the type of forage and the growth stage of those forages are really, really critical. We want to have sunlight hitting the ground. We want to stimulate browse production, but also have space for the forbs. Because if you have a lot of browse at ground level, it can shade out. You know, mid-story browse, mid-story woody vegetation is still going to shade out the forb production. And so you have to have a mix of forbs and, and, uh, and browse and allow the deer to use their natural abilities to find and select what they need out of that smorgasbord. Sure, sure. And and when you say lignified, you mean as the browse, the new browse becomes woody, if you will, right? Yes, yes. And it, it's kind of interesting how Mother Nature works when, as, you know, the browse is becoming lignified or, or woody, the forbs are still... You know, it's forb season, it's spring, it's summer, the forbs are available, where back in the winter, um, they're not available, mm-hmm. and that, you know, the deer are able to use the browse again then. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, the, the, the buds, you know, what's key to northern deer populations during the wintertime is access to woody buds. Uh, and, and so there's not leaves, but they're eating the buds off the branches. So they're, they're getting that, uh, what they need from the browse, and, and that's why browse is so critical. Having an adequate supply of it within reach of the deer is is critical to getting through that winter time that's so important to northern deer populations in particular. Sure. Dr. Steve, um, this is Albert here, big fan, by the way. Thank you for, for answering all my emails I've sent to you over the years after reading your book and, and Dr. Bronson's book, but I have a question. When you talk about browse and forbs, and I'm sure there's some variability based on the time of year, but I've always heard and read that even in large agricultural areas, uh, about 60 to 75 percent of a deer's diet will still consist of native browse and forbs. Would you say that that's accurate or inaccurate, or is it kind of regionally dependent? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, context is so important uh, in in answering that question. So biologists, we always love to say it depends, but (laughs) generally that number is correct. Uh, You want to be careful, you know, getting tied down to a very specific percentage, but that is a good general statement that uh, browse is is critical to the year-long Forbes are going to be really, really critical in the spring and summer. And in some areas, we even have, in, in southern uh, United States, we even have uh, grass consumption during the wintertime. The, the cool season grasses can be some of the best quality stuff available, and they'll be eating the basil rosettes, for example, of some of the uh, forages, uh, the grasses. So the, the key here is diversify the habitat. If you can look, where, if you're standing out on your property, wherever you can see on your property while you're standing there, think about the diversity of plants within your immediate area, your vision. And then think at a larger scale across your property, you need also diversity of habitat conditions. And then ideally you're working in most areas, we have smaller properties, and this is true in the southeast, and I know it was in, in the north as well when I was there. 
you have a lot of small properties, so you have to really work with your, your landowners and share, you know, spend some time uh, at the fence line talking and getting to know each other and, and gain cooperation and realize that, you know, maybe you're you're trying to row in the same direction. And so if you join forces and look at a larger scale, you can do some planning to uh, really improve the landscape level diversity of habitats. And Steve, is there a way while you're doing that that you could determine how your property maybe grades, you know, on a scale A, B, C, or D in terms of forage and browse? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, like what we, would the regular guy do for that? Well, the regular guy, uh, you have to know your plants and you have to know what deer are going to be eating in your area. And then you have to go out and look at the relative browse pressure on preferred, highly preferred and moderately preferred plants and engage. We, we call that just a browse survey. And you're looking at the relative browsing pressure as an indicator of the, the quality of the buffet that you're providing as a landowner. And you know, think about it. I use another analogy I use for my students is you go into a, a restaurant to a buffet, which of course, we haven't had in over a year now, but back before the pandemic, we had buffets. You could go in and, and, and access a variety of foods. And if that buffet is being maintained properly, and if it's a high-quality restaurant, you can have some great selections. But if all the really good quality food on the buffet isn't repopulated throughout the evening, the people that come in at 7.30 or 8 o'clock, they're not going to have much uh, quality food available. And so they're not going to get their choices. So we use the same kind of evaluation when we go out on a property and look at the available supply of forages, which ones have been browsed uh, heavily, which ones have not, and, and rank those based on our understanding of deer selection and what they would be normally selecting at a certain time of the year. And that, that tells us, is this a, a really good restaurant we want to go to? We want to bring our family or our friends back again? Or... Do we want to avoid this? And, and deer are making those same kind of decisions. Great metaphor. No, I think that's very helpful. Thanks for that. Now, moving along, you, you talk about life history considerations drive deer requirements, um, which then leads us into our, our habitat management, the things that we do, the actions we take. Can you dive into that a little more for us, please? Yeah, this relates to what an animal needs biologically is a function of what they're trying to do at any given point in the year. Now, during the wintertime, of course, deer in the north are just trying to survive. And so uh, that's their main goal is to live off their uh, fat supplies and take what they can get from the available habitat to get through to spring green up and, and the, you know, the warmth and, and of the spring. But the rest of the year are important biological processes taking place. And for the females, the key times to think about are late gestation and lactation. When a female breeds, typically in the fall prior to the winter, you know, she's going to breed based and produce uh, the number of eggs and, and uh, start developing fetuses based on her fall condition the forage supply leading into the fall and in what condition she's in. And deer tend to bet on future conditions. So 
does tend to ovulate a couple of eggs and try to start out with a couple of fetuses. And if the winter is not too se severe and too hard on her and too long, then she'll come out at the other end of the winter with two fetuses developing. But the cost of developing those really small fetuses is not extreme. But once they get into that second half and, and the last trimester of pregnancy, the demands for protein and calcium and, and uh, energy just increases dramatically. And so she has to be able to provide for herself to support that late gestation development. And she has to provide it by finding it on your property. And if you're doing a good job, she will find it. If you're not doing a good job, she won't. And it might be that she's going to lose one of those fetuses because she didn't get what she needed. Once she produces a fawn or fawns, hopefully two, she has a tremendously greater demand for protein, energy, calcium, phosphorus, and some other minerals to support her lactation. The uh, calculations I've, I've done based on some research, a doe to provide for lactation for two fawns, and lactation generally lasts three to four months, she has to eat an extra 1,000 to 2,000 pounds of forage over and above what she needs just to support herself. And so that's a huge addition in terms of uh, supporting that lactation. Now, I said 1,000 to 2,000 pounds, that how much she has to eat depends on the quality of the forage. If she has high-quality forage, she might only need six or seven or 800 pounds of high-quality forage. So if she's living next to a soybean field, for example, she might go out and, and get fulfill her needs for lactation by eating less than 1,000 pounds. If she's having to live off of you know, some really low quality forages that are not palatable, then she might have to eat 1,500 or 1,600 pounds during that time interval. Again, over and above what she normally has to eat just to survive herself. So lactation is a, placing a huge nutritional demand. From the buck side of the, uh, of the equation, bucks are growing their antlers late spring, which, you know, generally is a good time of the year to be doing something biologically because they are, uh, you've had spring green up, and, and so spring green up supports antler development nicely. But as you get into that summertime, the actual rate of antler development, their growth rate increases dramatically during June and July, and that's the same time that the nutrient quality is declining, especially in the browse plants. Uh, I mentioned, you know, browse declining in quality, and, and I'm talking significant decline. You're talking about a 50% drop in protein content. And to support antler development, you want something in, in an average diet somewhere around the mid-teens, around 16% uh, average intake. And... Most of the browse starts out back at spring green up. They might be up around 20. And so it's a great world to be starting to eat, eat food and support early antler growth. But when you're really starting to add in that antler development and 
those 20% protein values have dropped down to 10 or even 7 or 8, then that's a real problem. And that's where those Forbes come in. Having Forbes, they're going to be dropping in quality also because all plants are going to be aging. But the Forbes typically are starting higher. If you have the right forages, you might be starting around 25 or 28% crude protein back in the spring. And they might drop down to 14 or 15%. At least they're in, in the ballpark. And if you have some summer rains that stimulate new growth, those forbs can, can respond quickly to the increased rainfall. So you can get a quick boost from the forbs. So the bucks need good nutrient supply during that uh, final stage of antler development, June and July. And then they're pretty much on easy street, uh, Jared. Once they, they get through uh, the, the majority of the antler development, they're going to be relatively uh, okay because they don't have a lot of additional demands. They, they've, they're going to be replenishing some of their calcium and their mineral supplies because they actually – during that late stage of antler development, they actually go through a, a process of osteoporosis. They're pulling the uh, minerals out of their bones to support the rapid mineral growth being placed into uh, the rapidly growing antlers. So they, they pull resources out of their bones, and then afterwards they're, they're going to be replenishing that. So here in the south, at least, we have deer hitting mineral licks heavily in, in the late summer, bucks in particular, because they're replenishing their their uh, skeletal system. Uh, but but relatively speaking, late summer, early fall is, is not a big deal nutritionally for them. They also have to get through the summer, uh, I mean through the winter, of course, but prior to that, they need to deal with the rut, and the rut is the critical life stage for males because they're basically going to go on a uh, – well, it, it, a diet plan. They're going to reduce their food consumption. They're going to increase their exercise by moving more. And they're going to be spending a lot of time uh, wrestling with brush and, and small trees, fighting, you know, rubbing their antlers and, and building their neck muscles. Uh, their testosterone levels are increased dramatically late summer. And so they're really on this uh, bulk up uh, muscle program, but they're also decreasing their food consumption at the time, and they're exercising more. So they're getting bigger muscles, but they're not eating as much. And then they spend a couple of months chasing, looking for does, and not eating, and they're basically going to lose a significant portion of their body mass. They're going to peak in condition prior to the, anywhere near the beginning of the rut. And, and in Mississippi, our research shows that adult bucks start losing body mass after October 1st, and it goes downhill from there. And they're going to lose body weight through the wintertime. And so this rut behavior associated with their biology that they're not eating as much because they're spending more time there, that it's – Testosterone. I mean, it's it's like a drug. It's a steroid that makes them more uh, apt to be looking and fighting and aggressive and looking for those. So they're through this program, they're losing 20 to 25 percent of their body mass during the rut, 
And then they enter this winter time, which is so critical. And they've already lost a lot of their resources. And so in the south, winter is not as critical as it is up north. But uh, it's really, you know, they need to be in good shape starting before the rut. Then they're going to do this to themselves. So there's not a lot you can do during the rut to fix it. But after the rut, we need to worry about the post-rut recovery. So you need to be thinking about forages that can be available, preferably post-rut, but before you get winter uh, snow cover in the north. And in the south, we we don't have that problem. So it's easier to deal with post-rut recovery. But post-rut recovery is a really critical time for bucks nutritionally because it's you know they've been through this process they did it to themselves and then they're like wow now what do i do oh i think i'll eat and and so our job as habitat managers is to provide them something to find on your property so that they can recover from what they voluntarily did to themselves so those are those are the life history considerations sorry i I got rambling I, i tend to tend to do that. I'm, I'm bad uh, about rambling. So we have the males and the females, each with their own little life history schedule that tells us what animals need and when they need it. So, Dr. Steve, that was an amazing uh, bit of information there. And one of the questions I have in the whole balance of all of this is, it seems as though as you increase the quality of available nutrition and habitat on the landscape, on your farm or property that you're managing, you're also going to increase the likelihood of the population of of deer inhibiting that landscape growing. So where's the tipping point between where you're just having too many deer and is that just typically balanced by, um, with a trigger for for lack of a better term? Absolutely. Yes. That's, that is, you don't want deer dying from winter mortality because they went into, into the winter in, in poor condition. You want them to be going into the winter under the best possible condition, given what they just went through. And so that requires uh, lead poisoning uh, to be applied uh, liberally within the constraints of your habitat. Now, this is another one of those percentages that we we need to avoid talking. There are there are properties, there are habitat types in the United States that literally you don't need to shoot does because drought, in, for example, in South Texas, drought is such a problem on a on a regular basis that you don't need to control the doe population. You just manage the bucks that you're harvesting. But in many areas in the southeast that are better quality soils, we have to harvest uh, deer populations heavily. 30% of the adult doe population needs to be harvested on an annual basis, year in, year out. And, and that's one of the problems we get uh, have with, with landowners and managers, not well, hunters that are doing the, the management decisions. They get tired of the work that it takes to really do deer management well. It's easy to go out and shoot the buck that they've been wanting to harvest. And they get excited about that. Maybe they get excited about the first doe of the year because they need to put some venison in the freezer. But after, you know, after a while it becomes, oh, I don't, it's too late in the day. I don't want to shoot a deer today. 
it, it becomes too much work. And if you're not willing to work and and do what it takes to allow those deer to fulfill their potential on your property, then you're, well, we have some sayings about uh, about the wind direction and what you should do when you're out in the woods and things like that. But, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to do all facets of the game. You can't just manage habitat because many areas of the U.S., deer are regulated by density-dependent regulatory factors. And these are factors that as the deer population increases in numbers, the health of the deer population goes down. And as the population health goes down, their reproduction is going to be inhibited. The reproduction success, the fawn recruitment, the fawn survival through the winter, you know, these things are going to be depressing the deer population. If that's the way you're managing your deer component, you are not meeting the needs of the animals nutritionally because they're not healthy. So if you're doing a great job with your habitat management and providing for the health of the animals nutritionally, then you have to maintain an adequate harvest to keep them in optimum health. Because if they're not in optimum health, it's detrimental to you being successful in your management program. Great points for sure. Now, Dr. Steve, you had mentioned uh, certain challenges we may be facing in the north as opposed to the south. Talk a little bit about uh, some of the seasonal nutrient mismatches we might face, like the availability versus the needs. Yeah. In, in the south, you know, I know this for a fact because I've spent 35 years here, and I believe it applies also in the north. We have a, this distinct seasonal nutrient mismatch. It ties back to my, my first two points is that there's seasonal and spatial variation in quantity and quality of forage. So you have to manage to fix that problem. And if you're not, then you have a declining quality of forage going into the summer. Now, I've also talked about those life history considerations being really critical. Late gestation and lactation for the doe happens late uh, during the summer, late late spring, early summer, and, and into the into the early fall. And so, if you have an increasing nutritional need for the females, and you also have that late antler development in the males, this is happening at the same time that the forage quality is going down. So we have declining quality, increasing nutrient needs. That's a mismatch. They're going in the opposite direction. So you have to fix that problem, and that's where the habitat management, I love the idea that y'all have a habitat management-focused podcast because it's all about providing, uh, addressing that need. If you, if you really understand the needs of your deer population and then how to manage your habitat, you can build a habitat base that will provide for the needs. And I love using the uh, quoting uh, from Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner's movie. You know, if you build it, they will come. The deer know what they need and when they need it. And they have this uh, innate sense, this nutritional wisdom, if you would, that they can, if you have it available, they will find it and consume it. They are 
built their their anatomy, their gastrointestinal anatomy is built to require because of the way it's built, it requires relatively digestible forages. They're not like a cow. Cows can eat a lot of low quality grass and gain weight and be healthy. Deer cannot. They are a concentrate selector is the, the technical term about it. But what they're needing to do, they use their nice narrow uh, snout and long tongue and, and long narrow snout to reach in and find the particular parts of the plant that are most digestible, that are most apt to uh, provide them with their nutritional needs. So if you build it, they will come and find what they need. They will meet their nutrient needs in your habitat if you understand what they need and when they need it. I've been waiting to ask that question right there this whole podcast, Steve. How do we as as habitat managers um, know what exactly they might need versus what, you know, the outdoor channel is telling us to plant? Um yeah, I mean, clover's great, brassicas are great, I get all that stuff, but mm-hmm. how do we know which one? Well, there is no silver bullet in terms of food plots, and, uh, you know, planting forages is, is a critical component, and, and a lot of uh, our listeners to, for our podcast and, and our client base with, through the university, they are on lands where they're leasing and they don't have control over the habitat management and they're, they're allowed to harvest deer and, and they're given some small areas to where they're allowed to plant some food plots. And, and they're really restricted at what they can do. They can't do a lot of the things that we would love them to do and that they would want to do naturally. But 80% or 90% of the forage and your management efforts should be focused on natural forage. If you're only growing it in a food plot, then you're missing the boat in terms of providing the most cost-effective and the most diverse and the most natural habitat uh, supply that the deer can provide for themselves. Uh, They will find it. Now, they can concentrate into an ag field or a food plot, you know, and and with great success in in a wide open field, you've got maximum sunlight, and you plant and you fertilize, and before you do that, you soil test and you uh, amend the soil conditions. You know, the things that traditional food plot plantings involve. You can produce thousands of pounds of highly digestible forage on a small area, and that's great. But I really, I like to emphasize that food plots are a supplemental forage. They should not be the primary forage. You need to be managing under the trees, between um, among the trees, within the forest. You need to be having sunlight reaching the ground and managing the forest to produce forage to that is the the really the base of the supply of food for your deer population. Well said. Thanks. Thanks for hitting that. I was going to ask how that compares to native, and you literally answered before I asked it. So that's awesome. I know. Um, you know, we talk about the sunlight hitting the ground probably more than anything on this entire show. Um, and I guess if you're if you're measuring yourself or your property 
uh, native versus or natural versus food plot, I should say. Um, is there an attractiveness difference? You know, we, we all understand there's, you know, a natural browse, native browse, there's plenty of high protein levels and, and ragweed and, and things like that. But is there, spinning this a little bit different, is there a little bit of a, a hunting advantage that you might be able to add some sugar on top with a certain food plot? Do you ever look at it that way? Or is it more just the supplement? Yes, I mean, it, it, you have to look at it that way if you're helping landowners whose primary interest in deer is, is the harvest of them. Okay. You have to have, a, you know, the food plots that provide an attraction. Fully understand that. Most of my time, and, and most hunters get that, and they can read, you know, magazines and, and, and listen to podcasts and, and get a lot of information there. What I try to emphasize and what we emphasize here at the, at, at the MSU Deer Lab is that other component that is so critical. That's the foundation. Awesome. And, uh, you know, Bronson handles, handles most of the food plot questions and uh, because he's an extension specialist and he gets hit with that so much, I, you know, I dabble in food plots. So uh, since you're going to be having Bronson on, I'm going to, I'm going to, pass that buck over, <laughs> over to him and, sure. and let you act, let him answer that. But I'll just generalize that there's no uh, silver bullet and you need to look at food plot production in the, the harvest time, but also other parts of the year. Don't just think about it as a harvest field. Think about it. Okay, you've got some harvest fields, but you also have some other fields that are supporting that summer seasonal mismatch that happens and helping prepare the animals to breed successfully and go into the winter in good condition. So, uh, Dr. Steve, I have a question in regards. So, in Ohio, I'm in Ohio here. and it's, uh, It is a bait state, so you can bait all year long. Um, it's pretty traditional for guys to start around peak antler growing season to see what bucks that they have around. And, um, I recently was having a conversations with a couple buddies of mine who use bait to see what's on, you know, the, the farms that they hunt. And they were asking, well, if a deer is a concentrate selector, how come in the middle of July they'll eat a whole bunch of corn that's on the ground and uh, doesn't, it seems like they'll stay there all day long. Now, of course, we know that's not true. And, and my guess was that it's probably a very small percentage of the amount of browse that they're eating to balance out their rumen. But I'd love to have your take on um, why they see that observation, even in the summer months, with a crop that's not very nutritious like grain corn. Yeah. You know, Al, if, if I open up a pint of ice cream, I could look at that ice cream as a single serving. Uh, but that's not necessarily good for me to do every night to eat a pint of ice cream. And, and so I don't have quite as much nutritional wisdom as I should. I know it, I know it's not good for me, but I'm going to eat it because I love it. And some things are just so attractive, uh, they can get a, literally a, a buzz off of it. Uh, but it, that corn is, and, well, let me qualify. They're not, they might see that deer at that corn pile regularly. But if they looked at that deer's behavior through the 24 hours of the day, 
that amount of time they spend eating the corn is a very small percentage of the amount of time that they spend foraging. They're probably spending six to eight hours foraging and, and maybe 15 or 20 minutes eating some corn. So I would argue that, yeah, they see them at the corn pile, but that's a small percentage of what they're eating. And, and hopefully they're not just eating corn because corn with, uh, you know, in the summertime in particular, when the deer are needing, you know, 16% protein, if they're eating all the, all they're eating is corn, they're getting about 6% protein. And, and that's a bad place to be if you're trying to produce quality deer. I was hoping you'd say that. Thank you. As far as uh, foraging and energetics driving optimal distribution, could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, it, it's all about um, efficiency. And I use, I use an analogy with my students. I say, you know, we're, we're here in, on campus taking this class in such and such a building. And if you, have, if you live off campus two miles away, if you have to walk home, at lunch and eat lunch and then walk back another two miles back to take a class and then you have to walk home for dinner two miles and then walk back for your evening uh, student activities, you're not going to do very well in college because you're spending so much of your time and effort walking back and forth. So the same thing applies to deer. They are going to uh, spend the time that they need to spend walking to get the things that they need. And so the key to habitat management is to provide the nutritional requirements. And the other key component is cover. And if you're doing a good job managing your habitat, you can provide cover that is also food. And, and that's the kicker right there. If you can get a good forage supply that is also food, and that's relatively easier to do in native habitat, back to, back to that earlier point, than it is to do in a food plot. You can manage, manipulate the native forage, uh, the native vegetation to keep it, you know, a good supply of forage that provides horizontal screening cover so that the deer not only feel safe, but they're eating while they're there. And that's, that's the home run right there, if you can do that. Uh, and I, I, I rambled on that one, and I kind of lost my lost my train of thought there, Brian. Uh, sorry. I, no, you're, you're good. You're good, Steve. I, I think uh, that that makes sense. You know, using as little energy as possible. You know, especially in cold cold weather season. Uh, I can see how you could stack up your your food closer to your bedding, or or at least have some browse in between. Um, kind of leads me to my my next question about diversity. Uh, we hear diversity a lot, and, and you guys are, are huge proponents of diversity. How do you know if you're diverse enough? Um, and, and I guess, like, how how diverse is diverse enough? Uh, yeah. Um, it comes – that comes down to the uh, habitat characteristics. If you can – if you know your plants and you can go out and walk – uh, over an acre and find 30 or 40 species of plants within that acre, then you're probably diverse enough. Okay. If okay. you're walking across <laughs> another analogy, I actually I heard uh, you know, we were talking to a, a 
a biologist earlier today and, and uh, about kind of an indicator of habitat quality. And, and Bronson made the comment that, you know, if, if you look out through your habitat and you don't want to walk through it, then it's probably good quality habitat. <laughs> and then the, the biologist we were talking to, John Grucci, he, he said, yeah, that, that's my shorts and, and flip-flops analogy is if you can walk through your habitat with shorts and flip-flops, it's not good deer habitat. It's got a, you know, in, in a lot of places, a lot of that forage, you know, we talked about rubus or blackberry, I mean, that's got thorns on it. Smilax or greenbrier has thorns on it. But those are great forages to, that combine food and cover to deer populations. And if you're not getting bloody walking through your deer habitat in the summertime with your shorts, then, then you're not doing very good. Well said. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. C, obviously diversity is brought up in, in all different facets. And, and even now in soil health, a lot of people are talking about, you know, don't plant monocultures, plant diversity uh, for benefiting deer and, and also the soil. You know, and obviously there's a bunch of different types of ways we can manage habitat through diversity. Can you go through a couple of those and, and maybe also how it differs? Uh, like I'll give you one. I know that uh, in the southeast, prescribed fire is very popular. And mm-hmm. if I told you the cost of, of to burn an acre in southeastern Ohio, which is primarily heavily wooded, you'd probably fall out of your chair because it's it's just not used here. Um, so maybe hit on some of those differences regionally as well if possible. Well, yeah. Uh, prescribed fire is the ideal tool for deer management and for habitat management in the southeast for sure. Uh, there are a lot of properties that don't use it because of uh, liability concerns, but in most states they have laws that uh, protect landowners from liability, provided they have a, a prescribed fire burn plan and they have a, a trained person conducting the burn and the burn is done under the prescription, the humidity, wind speed uh, that's recommended for the type of fire that's being applied. So there's, there's legislation that's been uh, that helps protect landowner liability, but large landowners like the commercial timber companies, they don't use fire at all anymore because of, you know, they're just averse to any liability issues. But prescribed fire is is a wonderful tool. It is the most uh, valuable tool that if I had to have a single tool, I'd want to have prescribed fire as my tool. And we've been doing work in the last few years looking at the timing of prescribed fire in the South the predominant timing is basically late winter, after deer season, but before turkey season, which means February, early March. And it's hard to get all your burning done then. And it's also, uh, it's, it's an improvement over not burning in most cases, but the timing of the forage development is not that much different from a natural green up. And so the, the traditional late winter prescribed fire doesn't fix the seasonal nutrient mismatch. And so what we've been looking at is doing early summer burns, like in June and July. And those burns, oh, it's so, it's so great, uh, Al, that we've shown that deer 
don't necessarily follow the quantity of food, they follow the quality of the food. So if we put in some uh, late winter burns, we're, we're helping with the, the quantity and quality of food coming into the summer. But if we do some also some uh, summer burns after the quality of the sporges start to decline, we're going to create a new stimulus of nutrient growth, rapid growth post-fire. And the deer love that new nutrient growth in in the summertime after that late, after the growing season burn. So timing those fires to the right time to optimize this seasonal mismatch, try to fix it as much as possible. And you have to think about scale too. Across your property, you're timing the, it's a, think about it as a checkerboard. You're, you're just kind of spreading your treatments across your property to distribute them and then at a larger landscape scale as well. But, but again, up, up north, you don't use the prescribed fire. So really up there, getting sunlight to the ground is going to be the key. And, you know, prescribed fire, even if you don't have sunlight reaching the ground, you're, you're wasting your time. So you have to have sunlight getting to the ground before you can do any of these actions. So timber harvest is, is the key. Uh, but you also don't want to just go out and cut everything down that's out there. You have to work with a, you know, in the south we have to have registered foresters making timber prescriptions. And they would recommend the type of harvest and reforestation that's ideal or optimum to your soil types and your conditions and, and your budget. But you, you can also do a lot of thinning that provides a partial opening of the canopy. You don't have to just harvest. You can uh, thin, which is you know, partial harvest. As long as you're getting some sunlight to the ground, that's going to be a big help. One of the things we've been working on the last few years, and particularly Marcus Lashley, uh, it was kind of his brainchild, is uh, stump sprouting. And this is something that just about anybody can get their hands on a chainsaw. And as soon as that forage on that browse gets above the reach of the deer, it's, well, it's, it's outside the reach and it's not providing any forage. And particularly if the tree gets up into the mid-story, you know, it might say your upper canopy is 60 to 80 feet tall trees, and then you get this mid-story of 20 to 40 foot tall trees. That's got a, a double layer of capturing sunlight. And maybe that upper canopy isn't quite as closed as you might uh, think it is. If you get rid of that mid-story, you'd get a lot more sunlight. And so just taking a chainsaw out and cutting down some of your mid-story trees is a handy way to get sunlight to the ground. But also, we've shown that by uh, cutting most, most trees, when you cut them, they're going to sprout because they, they have this huge biomass of roots underneath the ground. And, you, and, and plants tend to balance nutrients above and below the, the soil level. And so whatever the biomass of nutrients is above ground is about that much below ground. So then you come in and you cut the, the, you know, you might cut a six inch or an eight inch diameter tree, 
tree falls over, and of course you've got leaves now available to, to the deer, but it's low-quality leaves. But the key here is the stump re-sprouts. And the stump sprouts, compared to the leaves that you just put on the ground, are going to be at least twice the crude protein content. They're going to be much more palatable, more digestible. The mineral content is going to be at least twice compared to the, the leaves in the, the unharvested, the uncut trees. And we, so we like, because of that mineral content, we, we like to call them mineral stumps. And it literally is like creating a mineral lick for your deer population. If you do this in enough places, you're distributing the deer across your property, and, and they will literally come in and work on that, those stump sprouts for a couple of years, and eventually, you know, they'll, the, the sprouts will break out beyond the, the reach of the deer, and uh, you move on and, and cut down another series of trees uh, in that case. You, you're not producing, you know, hundreds and thousands of pounds of forage, but you're producing high-quality forage underneath a tree canopy that maybe you couldn't harvest, but that mid-story tree is not going to be commercially uh viable in most cases. Oftentimes, they're not the, the primary tree of uh, management for timber resources, and so it's pretty easy to get permission to cut those down, and you're producing a localized food source that will be attractive. And that, talk about attracting deer in during, say, early bow season, that, that's a great way to do it. Absolutely. It's really well said. And, and Dr. Steve, just for some of the listeners who might not be fully um, aware of some of the benefits of fire, could you just high level touch on why fire is being used? Obviously, it generates um, good regeneration, assuming that the canopy is open. But what about its impact on setting back uh, non-native invasives and things like that? Have you seen positive impacts there as well? It, it, another answer, it depends, Our, uh it depends how some of these non-native invasives are actually fire-loving, and so like um, they actually do better with fire. So it allows them to outcompete native forages. And there's some grass species that are like that. Uh, so we need to avoid. We, we need to, it's the context specific. You have to understand what's present and what you need to do to fix that particular invasive problem. It may so require now, some kind of herbicide application to get rid of the invasive before you start applying a fire treatment to improve the habitat. So is that where that forestry plan is so important and that forester would most likely uh, prescribe a, before a prescribed fire, maybe they would say, hey, we need to treat all of this uh, tree of heaven. That's one I'm familiar here in Ohio or or privet or something like that before we run a fire through here um, because we don't want the fire to help out the non-native invasives. Am I kind of following that logic? Yes, and, and sometimes selective herbicides can be used not just for uh, non-native invasives, but uh, for undesirable hardwoods in a stand. That's part of that. Uh, if you're trying to manage, you know, a stump sprout, then it's easy to go out and cut a tree, but if you're talking about acres and acres and you want some large-scale improvements, we've used uh, a selective herbicide underneath pine trees to eliminate the mid-story hardwoods that are they're outside the reach of the deer and 
and they're really not good quality hardwoods. They're, like down here, we have sweet gum, which is that'll grow just about anywhere, and it's a real low quality forage. And so we don't want that necessarily, even if we created a stump sprout. What we'd want to do, and we've done it in a couple of different regions of the state where we've treated with a selective herbicide to kill the undesirable mid-story hardwoods and then come back through with a prescribed fire. And we've, in the lower coastal plain, we had a 900% increase in the nutritional carrying capacity of, of that in that soil type. In the upper coastal plain in North Mississippi, we found a 300% increase in the nutritional carrying capacity by getting rid of the mid-story hardwoods and reducing uh, and prescribed fire to clear the, the ground layer and make room for more highly digestible forbs. And when you do burn, some of those trees will, if, if you didn't kill them with the herbicide, then when you... If you have a hot enough fire, you'll actually kill back some of the smaller trees, and so they will re-sprout. And so you're creating a combination of forb availability as well as some small tree re-sprouting. And, again, the timing of that can really be customized to address some, some habitat limitations. Now, I'm, I've kind of bad-talked sweet gum. Uh, in our research looking at uh, the stump sprout process, we included sweet gum as a low desirable forage for deer, but we, we wanted it as a bookend. We looked at a high quality forage um, and a moderate quality forage and a low quality forage, and we stump sprouted them. And the sweet gum sprouted back just like the other species, and it was in, it increased in nutrient quality. Uh, protein and minerals. First year, they, the deer didn't eat them, but the second year, they actually started eating the sweet gums significantly. And so even a, a low-quality forage like sweet gum, you, if you apply the right kind of tools, you may actually improve it also. But uh, generally, we don't want to promote sweet gum. It's, it's not something we want in deer habitat. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, Dr. Steve, I uh, I have one more question for you, um, and it's kind of switching gears off of this topic. But I read Strategic Harvest Systems, uh, and I just I love the book. I I actually gave it to two different buddies, and I'm waiting on the one to give it back to me because I just thought it was so uh, profound. And one of the questions that, and, and going back to your point earlier about doe harvest and how a lot of people, it's it's difficult to shoot a lot of a lot of does. I mean, it just it's it gets tiring. In Ohio, we have a very long season, and um, by the time January hits, most people aren't wanting to hunt when it's five degrees outside and, and harvest a doe and things like that. But with that being said, one of the questions that seems to come up is if nutrition and habitat are so important. How come if I go to downtown Columbus or in the suburbs of Columbus or Cincinnati or Cleveland, why do I see big racked whitetail bucks? And is that just a small representation of deer that are put down into a smaller area? Or how could that be? Because the habitat and the deer density seems to be so high in those suburban areas. Well, one of the things that determines uh, antler, well, two critical components of antler development are age and nutrition. And in those suburban areas, there's not a lot of 
great deer habitat from the standpoint of land area, but they have some cover that they can go and 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 exist in. And at night they come out and eat eat all these fer- heavily fertilized yard plants. And so the forage quality can actually be pretty darn good in those circumstances. And there's no hunting around those areas oftentimes, and so they get older. And so there's there's some cases where some really big bucks have been harvested in some circumstances where they're, it's allowed, uh, but you don't have a lot of hunting in those circumstances. And but you can pull out occasionally of some really great uh, really great deer out of those situations because they're eating these highly fertilized yard plants. And, and Al, I appreciate the, the plug for the for our book, Strategic Harvest Systems. In case anybody's wondering where they can get that, it's available on Amazon, uh, Amazon.com, and just uh, they could <coughs> excuse me, they could type in Strategic Harvest System or Damaris and Strickland, and uh, find the book. And it, we wrote it to educate people about biological principles in a way that they could understand it and apply it to management. Its emphasis is on deer population management and particularly the buck segment, but we also have a whole chapter on habitat quality and the types of things I was talking about earlier about the seasonal variation and quality of plants and the biological needs of the animals. We cover that in the book as well. Yeah. I definitely just want to second that, that that book is, is a great book, and our listeners should check that out. It's it's not expensive. It's on Amazon. You can have it at your house in a couple of days. So I appreciate you guys, you know, writing that book for us. Um answers a lot of questions or, or or even maybe just myths that you hear about all the time with, with harvesting. So uh, thanks for plugging that, Steve. And I have one more question before we can tell all the listeners how to find you. Uh, what is your favorite tree? This can be for for habitats. Could be for hunting. It could be one you like sitting on your porch and staring at as the sun sets. Uh, just very curious. We get some really cool answers on this, and uh, curious to see what yours is. My favorite tree is the one I'm sitting in during bow season. <laughs> Amen. Can't disagree with that one. <laughs> and and hopefully it's it's not windy and it's not going back and forth in in the wind. I don't like those situations. And where you're at, what type of trees are you normally sitting in? Uh, there's a lot of pine forests yeah. around here. So and pine is probably one of the better species to climb up in a climbing stand. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, many years ago, I had a homemade climbing stand. And I was trying to climb up uh, – a really smooth bark hardwood. I can't remember for sure what it was, but I got up about 20 feet up and, and lost the grip, and, and I slid down holding on to that tree trying to slow myself down. I ended up not hurting myself. Now, this was long before uh, safety harnesses or anything like that were, I mean, you could, there might have been one commercial tree climber on the market. We, so Buddy and I made our own, and so I try to get ones that have a good thick bark that that, that climbing stand can grip really well. Now, great points, and, and thanks for answering that. Sounds like it could have been maybe a, a beech tree on a real cold morning. That sounds uh, maybe a proponent there, but uh, 
Mm-hmm. That, that kind of bark. Yes, exactly. I just want to thank you so much for coming on, spending your time with us here uh, this afternoon. And uh, why don't you tell the listeners how they can learn more from you and, and your group and, and point them in the right direction for us. Sure. We've got a couple of ways. We, we have uh, an online a, a website. It's called msudeerlab.com. M as in Mississippi. S as in state, U as in university, deerlab.com. And we've got all kinds of topics on there. And we also have a a podcast of our own. It's called Deer University. And we cover, we basically do the kind of thing what what we've been doing here today is talk about uh, research and and knowledge and and applying it, in this case, to to deer management. We cover a, a wide variety, not just habitat. Uh, we talk about population management and and all manner of things. We also have a pretty uh, wide uh, social media presence on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. So th- there's a lot of ways that we try to reach out to people and help educate in addition to, to the book that you mentioned, the Strategic Harvest Systems. Uh, and we're also going to be starting up a uh, online training program as well and we're really close to launching that Uh, so I just suggest that people check out msudeerlab.com kind of moving forward and come back and and check for our online training videos. Looking forward to that for sure. Yeah that sounds right up our alley there. Um, You know we've we've been big fans of your your podcast for a long time and uh, great you know science-backed info so Dr. Steve, we just really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much again, and um, look forward to keeping in touch with you in the future. Well, Jared, I've really enjoyed it, and Al and, and Brian, is, I, I just love talking about this stuff. Hopefully my passion came through in my voice. Uh, I love it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Steve. Thanks, Doc. Take care. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better Habitat Managers.